Kids, have a great time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 31 in your copy of God's Word. Of course, if you don't have one, you can follow along on the screens um, or in your bulletin as well. We've been uh, looking at the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis, and what we've seen is uh, how dreams play a very central role uh, in the spiritual life of Jacob and uh, his story. Um, we were at the store yesterday, and uh, as I like to do, I browsed through the book section of uh, one of those stores, and I stumbled on uh, just a very short 100-page book entitled Complete Book of Dreams, A Guide to Unlocking Meaning and Healing Power of Your Dreams, and it was less than $5 to buy this. Uh, tempted as I was to buy it, I passed along. Imagine if it could be so easy to figure out the mystery of our dreams. Well, when you come to the story of Jacob, there's two really famous dreams. One we've talked about already, one we'll likely look at um, next week. But there's a lot of little dreams that are also uh, peppered throughout his story. And we're going to look at a couple of those little dreams this morning as we come to Genesis chapter 31, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 24. This is God's word. Now when Jacob heard that the, sons of La- uh, that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see that the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, molted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners, for he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. 
And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This is God's word. Father, thanks for the gift of worship today, Lord. Just uh, my heart is refreshed by the, the truths that we sang in the songs, Lord, that, that just seem to, seem to emphasize the great grace that we have in you and what a great God that you are. Even the grave could not hold you. And so, Father, we pray that, that your greatness would visit us as we look at your word this morning. May we see your character uh, that stands behind all these messy details. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, um, uh, the movie Encanto was the, the biggest Disney musical that was out there. And if you've got little kids, I'm sure that you've seen the movie and you could probably sing all the different songs from the movie. Uh, but it really was a, a good movie, and it started out with this great big extended family that uh, had aunts and uncles and kids all living together, and they lived in this magical house, and they sang these songs together, and everything looked beautiful and wonderful at the beginning about this family. But then shortly thereafter, you dig into the details of this family, and you find that just below the surface, uh, it's, a, it's a very messy family with lots of dysfunction and and secrets and all the things that go with all of that family drama. Well, as we've looked at Jacob's family, we've seen that, that his family is really no different. Uh, last, we saw, last week we saw estranged Jacob leave his family and he had to take up residence with his uncle, a man named Laban. He marries two sisters, uh, he bears a lot of children to them and to their handmaids, And after the 11th son was born, uh, a son named Jacob, after the 11th son was born, things change a bit. And uh, Jacob wants to be free from his uncle Laban. Uh, He wants to be able to establish his own home, his own wealth. He wants to establish his own land for himself. But Laban doesn't want this to happen. Laban wants Jacob to stay with him in this great extended family. And so he negotiates wages for uh, Jacob to stay a little bit longer. And it has to do with speckled sheep and spotted sheep. We're not going to get into all the details of that. But the all said and done, neither one of them show a whole lot of integrity uh, in this negotiation process, uh, each trying to sort of outdupe one another out of each other's wealth. But in the end, Jacob comes out on top, amassing tons and tons of wealth and what wealth would have looked like in the ancient world. It really is a story of two wrongs don't make a right. We've heard that before. This is two wrongs that don't necessarily make a right. But when our passage opens, uh, we we get a window into Laban's sons and what they think about it. They're watching all this happen, watching all of it play out, and they're starting to get upset themselves. Why? Because their inheritance, as the the sons of Laban, their inheritance is being eroded away by this man, Jacob. And so it's all becoming too much, and Jacob realizes that once again, 
he has to run away. He has to flee from danger within his own family. Now, you might be wondering, what, what, what's the point of all this? Well, behind this scene that we see, this messy scene, and we've seen this repeatedly throughout Jacob's story, behind these scenes, we see God orchestrating the elements of this family drama. And what it's a reminder is that the messiness of humanity in general, the messiness of this family in specific, is evident for all to see, and yet God's character continues to shine through the mess. And so that's what I want us to look at as we look at this bizarre story this morning, is the character of God that stands behind it. There's two things that we see. We see that God becomes the defender of the wronged in this passage, and we also see that God is the redeemer of the wrong. He's the defender of the wronged and the redeemer of the wrong. And his character shines in two more dreams, smaller dreams than some of the ones we're most familiar with when Jacob's story, but dreams nonetheless. And the first comes at the very last verse we read, uh, in verse 24, where a, a very short or small dream comes to Laban, this uncle, and it demonstrates that God is the defender of the wronged. Verse 24 But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now the truth is Laban has clearly wronged Jacob and he's been doing so for decades. Jacob's worked for seven years in order to marry his beloved Rachel, but Leah became his wife instead. We saw that last week. Jacob needs to work another seven years for his beloved Rachel. Um, And in the end of all that, Jacob's had enough. So he wants to leave, but Laban wants him to stay. He didn't want Jacob to leave. And that's because Laban was clever enough to realize that there was something special about Jacob. He'd observed that, that God's presence was uniquely with Jacob, and by proximity, Laban would be blessed as long as Jacob was still in the fold. So Laban wanted him to stay. He recognizes that if if Jacob leaves, God's blessing is going to go with him, so they come up with this elaborate sheep scheme uh, in order to stay together. But after a time, even this sours, and Jacob flees again, and Laban pursues after him. That's what we read about in our passage. And that means that this conflict has reached its tipping point, And there's likely going to be a fight now. There's going to be blood as a result of this. This could all come to blows. But in the 11th hour, God intercedes to defend Jacob. He intercedes into Laban's dream, protecting Jacob. God is defending Jacob, one who has been wronged for decades. Last week we saw this uh, same sort of drama play out uh, for Leah, one of the mothers in this story. We learned about Leah that she was unattractive, that she was unwanted, she was undesired, she had to live in the shadow of her sister who was attractive and desired and wanted and she has to share her husband with her sister. Life had to have been so hard for Leah And yet God saw her, and God bestowed on her a special blessing. She would be 
the mother, one of the mothers of Jesus Christ himself. Two generations before all this were introduced to a character named Hagar. Hagar was also discarded. She was unloved. She was exiled. She was cast out with her son Ishmael. And they were both on the verge of death. When God comes to them, he saw them. He rescues them. He blesses them with special promises. If you fast forward to Joseph, uh, one of Jacob's sons, uh, their 11th son, as it were, he was also discarded by his family. He was sold into Egyptian slavery, but God saw him. God blessed him. He becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt and preserves his family from sure death through a famine. See, in each one of these instances, God is the defender of the wronged, the defender of the victimized. Generations later, there was a foreign king named Moab, and he brought a character named Balak into the scene because he wanted to curse the people of God. So he enlists Balaam to do the dirty work, and yet the only thing that comes out of Balaam's mouth is blessing and a bizarre situation with a talking donkey that you have to go back and read the story. You see, all throughout the scriptures, you see God coming to the defense of the weak and the vulnerable, confounding the strength of the strong in the process. Why? Because he was a God who defended the hurt, the weak, and the victimized. Think about Jesus himself. Who were the people that that flocked to Jesus? It was the blind, the lame, the poor, the diseased. They flocked to Jesus in droves. Why? Because they saw in the eyes of Jesus one who would love them, who would defend them, who would be on their side, who would care for them. See, friends, once we see this in Jesus, both in these biblical characters in our own lives, once we see this in Jesus as our defender, as the one who fights for us, then it changes the way that we live and it changes the way we think about the world that is around us. As I thought about that this week, I thought about um, one of the stories surrounding Corey Tenboom. If you don't know her story, um, she housed Jews during the Holocaust. She was eventually um, caught and put into concentration camps and uh, was abused. Her family was abused, obviously, in those concentration camps. And one of the stories comes later in her life after she had been freed. Um, she went around the world talking about her story and talking about the gospel. And the story goes that she was speaking in a conference where as, after the conference, one of the, the prison guards from the uh, concentration camp in which she uh, lived in, one of the prison guards came and approached her after uh, her talk at this church. She tells this story, and her words are better than mine. I was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Floraline, he said. To think, as you say, he has washed my sins away. 
His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for anything more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not even the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that, not, that it is not on our forgiveness anymore than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the very love itself. See, friends, as we see here, forgiveness is, is really hard. Loving our enemies is perhaps even harder And this type of forgiveness that was required from her in this moment is almost unimaginable to me. I don't know about you, but almost unimaginable. But part of forgiveness is trusting that God will be our defender. He will stand by us and he will bless us no matter the circumstance. You see, Corey Ten Boom didn't need to enact judgment in that moment. She didn't have to force any sort of penance instead She trusted in God to defend her. And that is what allowed her to forgive in that moment. God is the defender of the wronged. In our prayer time on Wednesday morning, we we read from uh, Psalm 46. And if you've ever read Psalm 46, it talks about um, the mountains giving way and the seas roaring and the earth shaking. It talks about all these troubles and wars and conflicts. But the psalmist says that he will not fear because God is with him. God is his fortress. In fact, there is this command even in the midst of trouble to be still and know that God is with him. What struck me this week uh, that I'd never noticed before is that in this psalm, when the psalmist mentions God, it mentions God by name by saying this twice. He is the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. What does that mean? Jacob's story is proof. It is evidence that God is the defender of the wronged. So that's what we see about his character in our passage, but we also see here that God also redeems the wrong. He redeems the wrong. Verse three, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred and I will be with you. You see, what makes this story so complex and the story of Jacob is, is if you're gonna use our little pattern here, Jacob is both the wronged and the wrong all throughout this story. In some ways, actually, we're sort of happy he's getting a taste of his own medicine here. Maybe he's going to learn from this life lesson. Uh, he's almost like an anti-hero. Almost, there's no heroes in this story. They all feel like they are anti-heroes. 
But all of this we've seen throughout is a part of God's redemptive work in Jacob's life. Jacob is clearly wrong in this narrative, just as his uncle Laban is. Uh, His wife Rebecca, or Rachel, I'm sorry, his wife Rachel is wrong because she stole the household gods of her uncle on the way. So there's no virtuous people here. There's no heroes to cheer for in this story. And yet, despite it all, God continues to bless Jacob. It's this great reminder that this story is a story of grace from start to finish, just like our stories, stories of grace from start to finish. You see, when God met Jacob in a dream and he saw that ladder with angels descending and ascending on it that reached up into the heavens, that was the start of Jacob's personal spiritual journey. It was no longer the faith of his father and his grandfather. It was now his faith. And God made a promise to him in that moment saying that he will always be with him. He will always stand by his side. And now, likely decades later, God is still standing beside Jacob. He's still working on the heart of Jacob, sanctifying him through the circumstances of his life. You see, Jacob was redeemed by God, but that redemption is ongoing for Jacob. As God progressively sanctifies him, progressively grows him through the circumstances of his life. The truth is God does the very same thing in our lives as well. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ at that moment of salvation, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are accepted by God, restored, become a part of his family. But that isn't just a sort of once and done moment. It doesn't mean that at that moment of salvation, God is is done with us. Instead, what he does is he continues to bring people and circumstances into our lives to shape us and to mold us and to grow us. We saw that last week. We saw God bring Laban into Jacob's life to to mirror his own thoughts, how God continued to bring difficult circumstances for decades into Jacob's life to shape and to mold him. This is God's work of redemption and sanctification being worked out in the messy details of our lives. But don't miss what God is doing here in this verse 3. God's about to raise the stakes for Jacob. When it comes to his trust and when it comes to his circumstance, God tells Jacob that it's time to go home. And what that means is it's time for you to go home and to face your family and particularly the brother whom you have deeply wronged. See, for Jacob, part of his own growth and sanctification was going to be to face the most painful thing of his past. Maybe even his biggest regret. We don't know his own heart in it. See, the truth is, friends, in the growth process, when it comes to God, with the growth process, sometimes that's what God calls us to do. To look square in the face of the most difficult thing in our lives. But here's the beauty of it. Jacob would not need to face the music alone. He wasn't on his own to deal with and sort through his painful past. Instead, God's presence would be with him every step of the way, 
holding him by the hand, staying true to his promise to be with him no matter what. Why? Because God is a defender of the wronged and God is one who redeems the wrong. He was that for Jacob and the same is true for you and for me as well. This week, we're going to put an image up. This week, I was teaching a a unit on um, ancient Ethiopian culture and particularly the spread of Christianity. And as I was teaching, I came along upon this image. I think we've got it for you to look at. Um, It is an image that you can find in the Met Gallery if you want to go to New York and check it out. But it's an image that I thought was beautiful. On the right, you can see the, the crucified Christ and it was in a distinctively Ethiopian uh, style in which they portrayed this. You've got Mary on the left of Jesus and John on the right. But the next panel, the one to the left, is an image that reflects the, the resurrection of Jesus. And it shows him lifting up two figures. And when I first looked at that, I said, who on earth are these, these two figures that Jesus is lifting up in this image of the resurrection? And as I studied, I discovered that it was actually Adam and Eve whom Jesus is lifting up. It's a picture of the redemption that is made possible by the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, what we learn is that each one of us, the gospel tells us, fell along with Adam and Eve, our first parents. They committed the wrong and their children, you and I, we've perpetuated that wrong ever since. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be redeemed. And I think what I love so much about this picture, I don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting, but the thing I love so much about this picture is that Jesus is grasping them by the hands. And it's a picture of the fact that Jesus grasps us by the hands and he never lets us go. You see, in that first wilderness dream, God grabbed Jacob by the hand. He held that hand through decades of mess and family drama. And now he's about to hold Jacob's hand as he faces the greatest challenge of his life. Why? Because our God is a defender of the wronged. He is a redeemer of the wrong. And he promises to hold our hand and never let us go. Let's pray.